Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Revelations 3, 1 through 6. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you give us your word. You give us truth. And sometimes, like today's passage, even if it's a hard truth, we're grateful to know what that truth is. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to see um, what you wrote 2,000 years ago, how it can apply to us as well. And uh, we just thank you for holding out the promise of walking alongside with you. And we look forward to that day. Amen. Please be seated. So by, by a show of hands, I'm curious, who had a childhood fear or at least a concern over quicksand? Okay, so some. All right. Um, I'm sure you've discovered this by now. You had no need to have that fear. But in case you actually do encounter quicksand, I don't know if you knew this, but you can't be fully submerged. It's got double the density of water, so it, you can't actually sink below your waist. So a more rational fear, a rational subterranean fear, would be that of sinkholes. And um, if you've lived here in Colorado for several years, you've probably seen or heard about these on the news. There's two incidents up on the slide above. The one on the left is from a woman in 2018, and the one on the right is a police officer in 2015, both in Sheridan, actually, and both of them were caused by leaking water pipes underground. And so it would create this unseen void that undetected from the surface, it becomes unstable and collapsed under the weight of a vehicle. Uh, The one actually in 2015 is just on uh, Oxford, west of of Santa Fe. But in both instances, there's no sign of instability, and then poof, a car disappears. In our passage this morning, the church at Sardis, they seem to be healthy, successful on the surface. From the outside, you'd think that Sardis was doing well. But like a sinkhole lurking undetected beneath the surface, they were dead on the inside and about to be surprised with severe judgment. Now, in case my sinkhole analogy isn't, is too tame to represent Sardis, look at the next picture here. This sinkhole, it's not, it's not a modified picture, it's actually real. It was in Guatemala City in 2007. It swallowed a dozen homes with people inside, and it fell to a feet of 330 feet. I had no idea it could go that deep. So obviously that's not underground pipes, but 330 feet deep, 
Talk about a rude awakening, right? So in today's letter, Sardis receives a rude awakening as well. And the structure of the letter is it's similar to the others, except that Sardis gets no, condemna- or no commendation at all. The letter begins like the other six with the speaker's authority, but then it transitions quickly to a harsh rebuke and warning. And this brief letter is probably the harshest of the seven, having a stern rebuke nearly applicable to the whole church. With the exception of a few people, Jesus had found the church dead, and he was ready to judge them. So before we jump into the passage, I want to lay some brief background on Sardis before we dig in. Um, And this will help you understand maybe what befell the church, and then also some of the imagery that Jesus is using. So first, the church at Sardis was integrated into culture. Um, We know from historical records that there was a very strong Jewish community there. And you'll see in the picture above, there's a synagogue that's found adjacent to a Greek gymnasium. They actually share the same grounds or complex, which is unusual. It shows that they have a blended culture. It's a culture of Hellenistic Judaism. So they fit in just fine. So it's likely that the church also coexisted peacefully with the Jewish community and also with um, the city as a whole which we see in verse 1 with them having a good reputation. Second, the city was known for dyeing clothing. They actually claimed to be the first to discover or practice the art of dyeing wool. Um, So they would relate to Jesus' imagery of soiled garments. And related to this is their reputation for wealth. Uh, The city had long been wealthy. There was the Pactolus River that uh, flowed straight through the city, and the legend goes that uh, King Midas had divested his golden touch in the springs above because gold was found throughout the whole stream. So during excavations, they found hundreds of crucibles, um, and one of the kings, uh, Croesus, he was the richest in the world at his time. So there was a saying, and my understanding is the saying was even in America not, not too long ago, but as rich as Croesus. It would be the same as saying as rich as Gates or as rich as Bezos. So they actually had so much money, they had to keep track of it. They, it was the origin of minting gold and silver coins. So they're actually credited with um, modern currency. And they're so wealthy that they even found jewelry buried in the cemetery with, with people. So, I mean, that's, that's affluence if you're burying jewelry. And lastly, the Sardinians were prone to feel very secure. So the original city, while it expanded into the plains, the original city was, was fortified high up on a cliff about 1,500 feet above the plains, which you can see above. This was a place, a retreat during times of war, and it was surrounded uh, by three vertical cliffs, or by vertical cliffs on three different sides, with only one approach that was accessible. So it was really easy to defend. They only had to defend one narrow, steep strip coming up. And so armies, they had unsuccessfully tried for centuries to conquer, but that assumed security, it led to complacency in the end. Those three cliffs, they were thought to be inaccessible, so they were left unguarded. But Sardis was overthrown twice, in 600 B.C. and in 300 B.C., both using the same method. The first time, a single soldier actually climbed that cliff and scaled an unguarded wall and opened the gates at night. The second time, the legend goes that one of the defending guards had dropped his helmet over the cliff, and so the opposing army is watching this as the guard goes down this kind of improbable path down the cliff to retrieve his helmet. Well, the soldiers then, just a group of 15, follow that same path up at night, scale the wall, and open the doors again. So in summary, both the city and the church, they were wealthy, 
and they felt secure. They were complacent. They had stopped watching for or guarding against any of these threats. Their enjoyment of wealth and false security, it led to a sleepy and an empty faith. And as you might guess, in our letter here and in historic records, we see no evidence of persecution of this church. Why would Satan persecute a dead church? So Jesus issued a wake-up call to Sardis, to this dead church wooed by the world and sedated by security. There was a glimmer of hope, though, that they might wake up, but if they didn't, they were going to face eternal judgment. So with that overview and contextual background in mind, let's work our way through the passage, starting with how Jesus asserted himself in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we'll pause there. As with all the seven letters, Jesus begins by addressing the angel of a church. So this means messenger of the church, could be an elder or leader, could be the giver of this literal letter that John is sending. But in each letter, Jesus asserts his authority, and he attributes it to something that John had described in in Revelation 1. So he draws some characteristic of that out. And each time that characteristic is related to the church that he is addressing, sometimes by similarity and encouragement, other times by contrast and opposition. And in the case of Sardis, we see that contrast as an indictment. So Jesus identified himself as he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, Jesus already explained the star imagery. In Revelation 1.20, he said, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So here he's demonstrating his authority over these churches, including their leaders and messengers. As for the seven spirits, we see that in Revelation 1.4, that there's seven spirits before God's throne. So this is referring to the Holy Spirit. And as you may be familiar, the number seven, it signifies perfection or completion or fullness. And so what he's saying is he's fully indwelt, perfectly indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In stark contrast to the dead and lifeless church of Sardis, Jesus is abundantly infused with spiritual life. Jesus had and has what they needed, what they were lacking So the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I think they paraphrase the solution to spiritual apathy by saying, what I got you got to get it, put it in you, reeling with the feeling, don't stop, continue. I don't know how many people relate to that. But Sardis needed a presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's finish out verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now in each of the seven letters, Jesus first described himself, in the first part of verse 1, and then he acknowledges the church's condition, like we see here in the second half of verse 1. Now, to five of the churches, Sardis here and then Laodicea excluded, he finds something commendable to say about the church. To Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patience, endurance, and so on. To Thyatira, he says, I know your works, your love, faith, and service, and patient endurance, and so on. But to Sardis, I know your works, period. You aren't alive, but dead. Nothing commendable. Their works, or their lack thereof, showed their lifelessness. And usually, we would think of works as being associated with an affirmative statement. It's a good thing to have works, unless they're so devoid of good works that actually irony best highlights that. That'd be like saying to a rich tyrant, I know your care for the poor. You're pointing out what they're missing. So this rebuke, it must have come as a surprise to the church. They had a reputation of being alive. Others thought they were a healthy church, and surely they themselves thought well of themselves too. So from the church's or the community's view, 
everything probably did look healthy. Contrast that to Christians who are in Smyrna that were clearly being persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, and even martyred. Here, the Christians in Sardis, they enjoyed city life and societal membership. Contrast it to Thyatira, where Christian businesses were on the line. Believers were being forced out of these trade associations. But here, the Christians shared in the wealth. They were prospering in their work. From an outsider's perspective, you'd think that the churches at Smyrna and Thyatira were in disarray. But here, Sardis has it together. The Christians in Sardis, they fit in. They didn't challenge the norm. They were probably pretty involved members of society. They're not causing issues with the local government. They integrate in without rocking the boat. From the city's view, this church is respectable. But as God told Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what did Christ see when he looked at the heart of the church in Sardis? Jesus saw a church that needed life support. The Christians there, they were blind to the reality that they were on the verge of death. Strong on the outside, dead on the inside. And I believe Jesus could have made the same remark to Sardis that he did to the scribes and the Pharisees when he told them, You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Now, despite Jesus' specificity in rebuking the Pharisees, he's very general with Sardis. Simply, they are nearly dead, and they haven't remembered or kept what they first received. In some of the other letters to the churches, we see Jesus was very specific to their shortcomings. To Ephesus and Thyatira, he prefaced his statement saying, but I have this against you. And to Pergamum, he said, I have a few things against you. And then he'd list those. I think the fact that Jesus does not name specifics here but makes a broad statement is quite telling. I think it says more than listing items out because I think it implies there are too many to list. Or rather, it's not that they're doing fine with some exceptions. It's that they're completely off track. So Jesus said to them, or Jesus said they did not remember or keep what they had received. So what do you think he's referring to? He's speaking of the teaching of Christ and the apostles. This is what churches were to receive and remember. That in, that's the foundation of Christianity. It includes the gospel, doctrine, right behavior, how you relate to each other. And it appears that not only had they been slack in keeping it, but they'd even forgotten the importance of it. The core teachings and truths of Christianity, they weren't central to their lives at all. It had faded to the background enough to have been forgotten. But the traditions and the routine, that still carried on, hence the reputation. But it was empty tradition, and it was lifeless routine. Now, we aren't told how this happened, but it's not hard to guess. For the culture to still hold it in esteem, but Jesus abhor it, we can probably conclude they became a lot like the culture. I mean, of course the Sardinians are going to like people who are just like them. Add to this the logic of what we know historically about Sardis, great wealth, political influence, the integration of Jewish and Greek culture, it's not hard to surmise that the church had forsaken her bridegroom just to be a societal institution. This is the very thing that James had warned the Jews about, saying, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And from this letter, especially verse 3, Sardis had become an enemy of God. So how does something like this happen? How does the church become like the world? Unlike the two sneak attacks atop the fortress that overtook it overnight, this process didn't happen in a matter of hours. 
Like the slow process of boiling a frog, the cultural adaptations were gradual and constant. Now, we've seen this trend play out in, in America over the last several decades, and we actually see it reflected here in the letters as well, which Lars summarized in his sermon about Pergamum a couple weeks back. Compromise starts with the hope of tolerance, then it transitions to expecting acceptance, and then it concludes with demanding celebration. Now, in Pergamum, the leaders, it shows that they adhered to sound doctrine, but they were tolerating false teaching to come into the congregation. Then when you look at Thyatira, we see a leader in the church actually advocating or propagating that false teaching, and now the church is participating in it. And now we come to Sardis, we see a dead church whose reputation is still celebrated. And I don't think it's a coincidence the ordering of these letters here where we have tolerate sin, accept sin, celebrate sin, and spiritual death. In our passage, it doesn't really allude to the sins that they celebrated. I think a safe guess from Scripture in general and world history is sexual immoralities among them. But I think it's broader than that. I think it's broader than a specific. I think it's a dynamic. I think it's a love for the world. My guess is that they struggled with the same things that we do here in America. A sexualized culture, an ease of life, an absence of persecution, a country or a place of worldly power, and an affluence that we take for granted based on historically being blessed. And as probably most of us know from personal experience, there's a strong temptation to fit in with the world, to play by its rules, to seek achievement, status, possession, entertainment, comfort, and the list goes on. My guess is they did just that, and that they lost their way. Their condition was probably quite similar to what Jesus says to Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Worldly status means nothing to Jesus. If anything, worldly riches are a snare, a deterrent to a deeper relationship with Jesus. So perhaps again, the red hot chili peppers paraphrase Jesus' sentiment saying, Unimpressed by material excess, love is free, love me say, heck yes. So hopefully Ben wasn't planning on using these lyrics. I doubt he listens to the devil's music, so he's probably safe. But they had fallen more in love with the world than with Jesus. And John, the transcriber of these letters here, had warned of this very issue earlier in 1 John 2. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Sardis had been lulled lulled to sleep by the cheap things of the world and was dying because of it. But there was still hope, because like our friend Wesley, it just so happens that Sardis here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is still slightly alive. If you're confused by any of that, you need to watch The Princess Bride. But reading verses 2 through 3, we see it says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is it about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Thankfully, the church at Sardis was not all dead. They were not past redemption. They could be revived. In this warning from Jesus, we see a glimmer of hope for the future of Sardis. There are still some embers that are flickering from the, though the fire had burnt out long ago. 
But as to what these embers are, what remains and what should be strengthened, it could be a few faithful individuals, like we see in verse 4, that maybe they could edify the church, turn things around. Or maybe what remains could be any last dwindling signs of spiritual life or behavior in the church. Perhaps there's some remnant of morality, godly character, love for others, something that distinguishes them from culture. Regardless, the imagery that Jesus gives us is a near-death church. These remnants are about to die out. Now, recall in chapter 1 what the seven lampstands are. They represent the seven churches. So, picture a lamp that has run out of oil, and it's just running on fumes now. The light coming off this small flame is really dim now, and that light's beginning to flicker. This is your last chance to add oil to that lamp, after which the flame goes out. You can add as much oil as you want, and it'll do nothing. Or, use a more contemporary illustration. Picture the wilting plants in your office during COVID lockdown. After weeks of forgetful neglect, your, wa- your plants need water soon. You wait a couple more weeks, you'll never have to water them again. So, how can this be remedied? Note that for revival, this church doesn't need a new pastor, doesn't need a growth strategy, doesn't need more community outreach or revised systematic theology. What they need is just to remember and keep what they had originally received, what they had originally been taught. They need to go back to the basics and stick with the basics. In the Christian life, you don't move beyond the basics. You build on them. They remain central. They remain at the core. They're never peripheral. So going back to the basic core message of being a hell-bound sinner, saved by grace alone, is the only way to revival. Being overwhelmed by God's majesty compared to your smallness, beholding his grace and mercy in light of your inadequacy, this is why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, so that they would be brought back and we are brought back to the basics every week. The answer to the amnesia was to return to the beginning, to repent by disavowing loyalty to the world and to remember their identity in Christ and their citizenship in heaven. If they did not repent, remember, and remain, if they stayed asleep, then Jesus would come against them like a thief. Now, this mention as a thief probably brings to mind imagery of the rapture. They're not connected other than but what they both share in this common metaphor is a sudden appearance without prior notice. So he's going to come and remove their lampstand without telling them. So for those in Sardis and for those unprepared at the rapture, Jesus coming, it's unwelcome and it's hostile. This is a stern surprise for sleepy Sardis. A thief's unannounced coming should be prevented if possible. I mean, we all do this. We put locks on our doors. We have security systems. You know that if you're going on a trip, you don't post about it on social media until you're back from that trip. Ruth and I, we finally made space to park our Suburban in the garage because of all the catalytic converters being stolen. The thing is that we protect against efforts, or we, we try and make efforts to protect against loss of personal property. But what about guarding against the loss of rewards in heaven? Or even worse, the, the eternal, your eternal life, losing that. Maybe that question makes some of you uncomfortable especially if we have any young adults in the church that maybe have been playing church and undecided as to whether this faith is your own. What about eternal security, you might ask? Well, there's a long-standing debate about that, but I'll paraphrase some insight from Craig Keener. He says, While Armenians teach that apostasy reverses the results of conversion, and Calvinists teach that people who fail to persevere will never convert it to begin with, Both agree on the end result. 
Those who do not persevere are lost. Some have wrongly reinterpreted the Calvinist position so as to allow into heaven anyone who professed a single time salvation. That's an idea refuted here and regularly throughout the New Testament. Jesus is warning the church at Sardis that this is their last chance for repentance. He is coming as a thief against them. And unlike Bon Jovi, the church at Sardis is not wanted, dead or alive. If we look at verses 4 and 5, only those who are faithful and conquer will walk with Jesus. Only those who overcome and re- will remain in the book of life. What about those who do not conquer? What about those who stay asleep? Well, it's implied that Jesus will blot out their name from the book of life. And he will say, I never knew you. You cannot count solely on a past profession. Jesus expects a long-term relationship, not a one-time acknowledgement. And while he certainly doesn't expect perfection, he does expect faithfulness. In the case of Sardis, he's asking for repentance, remembrance, and steadfastness. And as we see in verses 4 through 5, not all in Sardis had passively forsaken their faith. And there was hope that some who drifted might come back. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will, blot, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Against the backdrop of this severe warning, there is hope for a great reward and intimacy with God. Note that Jesus didn't say that the faithful would walk the streets of gold, but they would walk with Jesus himself. That's the true prize, an authentic connection with God. This should be the motivation to press on, to be able to walk alongside of someone that holds the seven stars and is filled with, perfectly filled with the Spirit. I mean, that's an amazing depiction, and certainly not one I would naturally expect to be associated with. I can relate a little better to Jesus who held children on his lap, or I healed sick people, or you know, shared himself as a shepherd. But to be uh, alongside and have intimacy with someone with authority over the universe is astounding. To think that he has time for me, time for you, I mean, this ought to motivate us to persevere. This is the hope that he's offering should motivate us to conquer. So to the faithful few, Jesus had not forgotten them. They were not lost in the crowd, lumped in with the lethargic church as a whole. They would be remembered in the next life to come. They'd be written in the book of life, and they'd be confessed before all of heaven. To those who kept their watch, who guarded their lives, who held their faith as precious despite watching their community deteriorate, their faithfulness was not in vain. And these were literal individuals who persevered when everyone else had given up. You can imagine or at least picture what kind of concern they might have had about being associated with a church like Sardis. It's kind of like being assigned to a group project in high school with classmates who don't care about their grades. But thankfully, for these few folks, Sardis was being graded individually. And Fanning said it this way, Amid this largely negative message, that calls for the majority of its members to take desperate and decisive action or face certain judgment, Jesus does not forget the few individuals in Sardis who have defiled their garments. Even when he must paint with broad brushstrokes, he doesn't lose the fine touch of personal knowledge and attention. 
Now, a quick note on soiled or defiled garments. This, like I'd mentioned earlier, you know, they claimed to be the first to discover the art of dying, so this imagery would have hit home. Perhaps for us, our mind goes to uh, the reference in Isaiah that talks about how our righteousness is like filthy rags. So maybe you're thinking, if an attempt at good deeds results in soiled garments, what would keep your garments white? The answer is nothing on your own account. It's not that these people were better performers. It's that they maintained a relationship with Jesus and a dependence on his grace. The minute we make it about ourselves is the minute that we exchange our best clothes for his clothes. These white garments, they're not our original clothes. They come from him. They're a gift from Jesus of his righteousness, of his purity. And they will be white for two types of people in our passage. The few that remain faithful and those who end up conquering in the end. Now, those who remained faithful are among those who conquer, but there are individuals who were not faithful, that did soil their own garments, and yet they repent and they conquer in the end. And what I think is notable is that both receive the same treatment. The one who conquers would be clothed thus, or in like manner. That's in reference to the faithful few that he mentioned earlier. So why differentiate between these two people if it's the same end result? I believe Jesus is removing any reluctance to repentance. There should be no hesitancy about returning to the faith. To the unfaithful person who repents, they too will be clothed in white. They don't get lesser treatment. It's not like the faithful get pure white and then the repentant get light gray. This is similar to the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where they each receive the same payment regardless of how long they labored in the field. And this should be tremendously encouraging because hope is never lost. You've never blown it completely. There's still another chance, and a chance for the full prize, not a part of it. Not only can you be spared the coming judgment, you can still redeem the full reward as if you had been faithful all along. Now, as we turn to application, I think the similarities are readily apparent between the culture and challenges that Sardis faced and what Christianity faces in America today. But in case anyone thinks this doesn't apply to you, just read verse 6. And if you have at least one ear this morning, then this is for you. So to each person here today, there's a need to examine your heart. Or to borrow from Ice Cube, chickety-check yourself before you wreck yourself. Now, please don't Google him. I put that in the the, um, bulletin before I Googled him. And I guess I must have heard some pretty severe radio-edited versions (laughs) back in high school. So... But how do you check yourself before you prevent wrecking yourself? Now, taking Alex's advice from last week, I do have the obligatory three points. So, inventory your heart, guard against attacks, and fear God, not man. So, as for an inventory of your heart, you're to examine where you stand now. Check your spiritual pulse. Pinch yourself. Make sure that you're not in a spiritual dream state. Have you left or forgotten the basics? Do you still hold the gospel dear? Now, whether it's new to you now or if you've been a believer for decades, we need to regularly dwell on the gospel. And Sardis neglected to remember the gospel. And so the members regressed to their pre-conversion condition. We all start out spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 tells us this by asserting that we were dead in our sin, unable to save ourselves. It says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
Our spiritual lifelessness is why Jesus came, suffered, died, and took on sin so that you could have life. Jesus described his express purpose in John 10.10, saying, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that word is actually super abundance, well beyond necessary, far more than earthly life. Jesus offers eternal life. This is the greatest gift that anyone could give, and it's the only, and, it's, and Jesus is the only one that could give that. No amount of gold could buy you a single minute in heaven. It's a free gift that only asks for trust and faith in return. And if you have not yet fully placed your trust in Jesus, would you consider so doing today? Would you be willing to follow a Savior that humbled himself, a Savior that came as a servant to redeem rebellious sinners like me and like you? And if you have received this free gift, is it still a source of great joy and comfort? I'm guessing that the Christians in Sardis rejoiced when they first received the news. But it became out of sight, out of mind. Jesus had gone back to heaven, and life in Sardis wasn't really that bad. They were well off. Didn't feel like they needed to trust God in the daily protection or provision. And so they were gradually seduced to sleep by the world and its temptations that they forgot the precious truths of the faith, and they drifted towards spiritual death. It's not because of hardship, but because of plenty. They simply forsook the gift of eternal life out of apathy. But rather than give up the whole faith, they kept that empty routine. They put on a show to maintain their superficial reputation. Maybe that describes someone here today. Maybe you're here most weeks, but your heart and mind are elsewhere. Maybe even help out in ministry with Sunday school or coffee or wana, but you feel completely dry inside. Maybe it doesn't bother you as long as you're not found out. Perhaps you're here with a spouse, a parent, a friend, but you're here for them, not for Jesus. You can't afford to lose your reputation. Your faith's not really a relationship. It's about keeping up appearances or keep the peace. Maybe your spiritual theme song or theme song is Queen's The Show Must Go On. Well, could it be that there are some here this morning, then, that are Christian in name only? If so, this passage is for you. And here are two considerations. First, have you been following man instead of the son of man? If you truly knew Jesus as he is, you would love him. You would want to be his. Perhaps you've approached faith as a religious system, as a way of man trying to reach God, not as a defining relationship. Jesus is the good shepherd. He paid for your sin, not to control you, but to set you free. Free from yourself, to give you true meaning and purpose, to give you a place of belonging in his family. Being a Christian, it's not just a side interest. It's not some adjective that modifies a more prominent pronoun. Being a Christian is a defining reality. It's a permanent, far-reaching, life-changing identity. And if you've never seen Jesus or a relationship with him in that light before, then speak with me or one of the elders after the service. The second thought is while you can fool man, you can't fool God. You can't fake it until you make it. You can fake it until you're forsaken. God told Jeremiah in 17.10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And then Psalm 139, that whole passage is about you can't escape God. He knows your ways. He knows your thoughts. He knows you, all about you. And this ought to cause a holy fear. 
And I wouldn't diminish the full sense of that word fear by limiting it only to reverence and respect. Yes to both of those things, plus an awe of his power, plus fear itself. A second application about checking yourself after inventorying your heart is to guard against attacks. Now, we cannot make the same mistake that Sardis made, assuming that three of the four sides could be left unguarded. It's said that the capture of Sardis could have been prevented by a child. If a child had just seen that enemy soldier coming up, go tell another guard, the whole thing could have been prevented. It was so easy to protect against. But we have an enemy that is much more cunning and hidden than a soldier in the night. We need to remain on watch because First Peter tells us that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So where does it start? How, what do we guard against first? Now, the threat to the fortress of Sardis did not begin once the enemy had jumped over the walls. The threat began when the defenders left those walls unguarded. And the threat to the Christians at Sardis did not begin with apostasy or apathy. It began with tolerating sin, accommodating the world. And the threat to your walk doesn't begin with something big like adultery or atheism. It begins with small concessions to the culture, small departures from the Bible. Falling away begins with tolerating sin, which gives way to accepting sin, which culminates in celebrating sin, at which point you've killed your conscience. Satan knows that falling away has to be a gradual process. The frog is going to jump out of the pot if you apply heat too quickly. But Satan's in it for the long haul. He can be patient. He's not aiming to ruin your day. He's aiming to ruin your soul. So considering oneself secure and failing to remain alert is sure to bring about disaster. So let's think through some threats to us here at Orchard. Now, being a Bible-believing church, probably the first objective is going to be to undermine the authority of Scripture. It's usually where he starts. And he's going to come at this from a few different angles. First, destroying leadership. If Satan can dismantle godly leadership, his job is more than halfway done. And there are many ways to do this. Disunity, discouragement, discord, disobedience. If he has a chance to make something public out of a leader's sin, like an affair, that's a pretty ideal situation. And there's a whole list in the back at the greeters table on how you can pray for our leaders. The second strategy is going to be eroding personal conviction. An erosion is a slow and a subtle process. Satan blurs the lines, he muddies the waters, he funnels lies through the culture, through people that you'd naturally want to respect. And perhaps most effective of all is Satan can prey on emotion, getting you to question if your own personal circumstance might just be an exception to the rule. Now, I don't think it's coincidental that Jen Hatmaker departed from the evangelical tradition back in 2016 at the same time when her daughter came out as gay. Now, had her daughter affirmed heterosexuality, my guess is that Jen may have never departed from the faith. Not because the intellectual debate is any different, but because it's less painful, it's less personal. And the third strategy is to use distraction. Now, I think this is an effective and subtle tactic. Nothing overtly adversarial, but destructive nonetheless. The end objective is to fall in love with the world, such that Christianity starts to take a back seat and it's relegated to a corner in your life. Now, I can think of few things that would be, or that would as effectively deter my personal walk than worldly pleasure and 
and uh, worldly success. Those sort of distractions, they can lead to just a deadness of the soul. And in personal pain and tragic loss, if Satan applies pressure in that regard, emotion can be a gamble that can lead to bitterness and anger, or it can lead to a complete dependence on God, or perhaps it switches between the two. But a safe strategy is distraction and redirecting passion. This is a long-term game of indifference. And to be able to provide so much in this life to where we become apathetic about the next life. And Jesus told Sardis to wake up, to remember what they had forgotten. It's not that they apostatized under pressure. They just went to sleep in pursuit of pleasure. And we face that same danger. Now, the third and last application to prevent wrecking yourself is to fear God and not man. The church at Sardis sought to please man, and in doing so, incurred condemnation from its Lord. Now, unless we are among believers, it's very difficult to please both God and man. And while we certainly want to be inviting to the lost, we don't want God's truth to be modified to be appealing to the lost. We must be on guard against the culture's effort to infiltrate and influence the church. Now, while there has always been negative external influences threatening the purity of the church, in my perception, a lot of the times, these seem kind of uh, passive in a way, that they're temptations to lure Christians away from the church to something else. But I believe in the last several years that there have been an increasingly orchestrated efforts to attack and undermine Christian doctrine from within. It's not just a passive deterrent. It's now a building frontal assault. Previously, you could disciple believers to show them, with correct perspective, the pitfalls and to avoid these temptations, to stay away. It's a strategy of perspective and avoidance, of don't go over there. But now the agendas are being brought into and against the churches, and the moral fight is coming to us and against us. So I think we must be prepared to engage in the fight and stand our ground rather than hoping to avoid a confrontation. We're in the midst of a, a radical moral revolution, and we Christians need to actively defend biblical truth. Part of standing for truth is proclaiming truth, but part of standing for truth is calling out falsehood when you see it, to be willing to call a lie a lie. And simply defending the Christian position and disagreeing with culture is becoming increasingly confrontational and emotionalized. What should be a matter of conscience is now a matter of personal offense and merits retribution. We need to be willing to be vocal and firm on issues that relate to morality and God's order. Let's consider a few examples for today. Maybe there's a biological male named Tim in your workplace that requests pronouns of she, her, and hers, and goes by Tammy now. How will you interact with this person? Do you know that people have lost their jobs over this and been brought to court? Or... If you're hiring and you have a preferred candidate that's best fit for the job, but HR tells you to hire a different individual to meet their DEI quota, what will you do? Will you have that conversation? Or if the government threatens your livelihood and ability to provide for your family unless you demonstrate complete obedience, will you choose compliance over personal conviction? Although these should be straightforward issues or straightforward decisions, the uncertain consequences can really cause us to consider compromise, causes us to pause. So maybe some are listening to this and wondering, why am I bringing these issues up? Shouldn't the church focus on defending the gospel? 
as we've seen, compromise does not start with major departures from essential doctrine, but with small deviations from the biblical worldview. You infiltrate in the small things first. These are the types of topics that led Jen Hatmaker and Joshua Harris to apostatize. If it can happen to them, it can happen to me, it can happen to you, it can happen to your children. If churches are hoping to sidestep these issues, remain silent, then we can expect to see damaging effects on the next generation of Christians. If Christian leaders and parents are not publicly defending the truth, if we're not talking about current issues and how to proactively navigate a biblical defense, then who do we expect the next generation to take their cues from? I know it's taboo to talk about this. People are really reluctant to get into some of these issues. We aren't supposed to talk about it, but as we all know too well, the media talks about it at every opportunity they get. I mean, the sports page is now an unashamed platform for LGBTQ propaganda. The area of politics has expanded, expanded well beyond government, well beyond economy, and now it embodies entire worldviews, morality, and value systems. And I'm sure that the faithful churches of the first century kept the gospel at the center, but I don't think they were silent about the Roman law about hailing Caesar as Lord. And as the moral revolution continues oppressing on the church, we need to be prepared to vocalize our defense of biblical Christianity. If we want our church to be alive in Jesus' eyes, we must fear God and not man. Whose judgment would you rather fall under? The world, with your neighbors, your peers, your coworkers, or the Lord's, your Savior, your Creator? If you remain true to Jesus' good teaching and lean on his grace, he says that you will walk with him by his side in white for eternity. And that is worth fighting for. So please stand as we close in prayer, and then we'll close in a brief song as well. Dear Jesus, we thank you for the way that you do care about your people and that you do come to prune, and when we misstep, you call it out, but that you are there with open arms to receive us if we'd only repent, turn away from our sin, and come to you. Help us to be faithful when it's difficult and help us to, um, to always keep you in mind as our eternal judge. Amen.